Welcome. My name is Mike Livermore, and I'm a professor at UVA Law. Today is the first in a series of public conversations on place and power, hosted by the Program on Law, Communities, and the Environment at the University of Virginia School of Law. These conversations will explore connections between human place-based relationships and the law and politics of environmental governance. These events are co-sponsored by the Virginia Environmental Law Journal and the Virginia Environmental Law Forum. Our guests today are Professor Emily Preifogel and author Earl Swift. Professor Preifogel teaches at the University of Michigan Law School and focuses on law and rural communities. She earned her JD from UC Berkeley and her PhD in history from Princeton. Earl Swift is a journalist and author of Chesapeake Requiem, A Year with the Watermen of Vanishing Tangier Island, the widely praised recent book that records Tangier Island's distinctive community and its response to the rising waters of the Chesapeake Bay. John Cannon will moderate today's conversation. John is a law professor here at UVA and is the director of the program in law, communities, and the environment. We welcome audience participation in the conversation today. If you have a question that you would like to submit, you can do so via the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Uh, John. Thank you, Mike. Earl and Emily for joining us this morning. It's wonderful to have you with us. Um, we're going to, as Mike indicated, we're going to spend our time this morning exploring the dimensions of life and culture in rural communities. Um, you both research and write about rural communities from quite different perspectives. Emily is a, a legal historian working with uh, farming communities in the Midwest. Earl as an author of a nonfiction narrative relating to the life and, and uh, times of, uh, of a single island community in the Chesapeake Bay Tanger Island. We wanted to take advantage of this diversity in exploring some of the nuances of rural life, the variety of rural life, the particular challenges of rural life, and um, the future of rural life in the United States. We're an environmental program and a law program, so I thought we'd start first with some questions about nature and law. Um, and um, the thing that occurred first to me as we, as we were thinking about this session is the, the relationship of these rural communities to nature, to the natural resources that both surround them and in, in both cases uh, supply the economic basis for their livelihoods. Um, in the case of Tangier Island, it's the Chesapeake Bay and uh, the crabs and the oysters that live there. In the case of the Midwestern communities, it's the land and the farming activities that produce much of the economy of those communities. So my question is, is to both of you, did you see a special connection to nature in these communities that you wouldn't have expected in um, more urbanized settings? If so, what forms did it take and how did it shape the community? Emily, mind if I go first? Please. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, I mean, on Tanger Island, uh, uh, you can do nothing without interfacing directly with, with nature and all of its whims. 
simple tasks require you to, uh, to cross a lot of water. I mean, this is a tiny island in the middle of the widest part of the Chesapeake Bay, 12 miles from the, the nearest mainland town, 16 miles from the nearest town of Virginia. And, um, and so to, to accomplish even the smallest chore uh, off-island requires you to cross 18 trillion miles of water that, that forms a moat around this place and, and maroons it from the rest of America. And uh, uh, it, that has colored everything about life on Tangier, including its, uh, its insularity, as you might expect. I mean, uh, everybody on the island is essentially related. They're all cousins or closer, descended from one family that moved there in 1778. And, uh, and it's also, I think, uh, played a great role in strengthening uh, what is essentially a, a working theocracy of old school Methodism uh, in, in the sense that uh, these trips across the Bay are often white knuckle affairs. And if, if you're not praying when you start out, you're often praying by the time you're halfway across. And, uh, and uh, you know, that, that they are a... Uh, a biblically literalist, extremely conservative, uh, inward-looking bunch, uh, and and that's all of results of where they happen to be in their relationship with nature. You know, in the Midwest, I see similarly ways in which geography isolates rural communities. Right, there's um, fewer connections, but certainly the you know federal interstate system has connected rural communities across the 20th century in the Midwest in a way that it's just not happening on an island community like how you study Earl, right? The Midwest is far more connected in the rural communities, I think, than, than other rural areas in the, in the country. So I think that's part of it. But the, as far as the connection to nature goes, you know, in the Midwest, there's still lots of farmers, but very few rural people are actually farmers, right? And so as far as agriculture and economy, that's still very much part of rural life. But the number of people actually doing agricultural work is much smaller than it was when we started out this century. So I think um, over the course of the 20th century, I see lots of rural Midwesterners with a special, special knowledge about the land. So maybe we'll talk later about science and those kinds of forms of knowledge. But I think there's a special kind of knowledge that rural people hold that it's a little bit of common sense, but it's it comes from knowing the land and being out on the land all the time. But um, but I think those things are changing very much, especially in the Midwest across the 20th century, just because of a greater interconnectedness with urban hubs, even if it's you know a small urban hub, right? Small cities, small towns, mm -hmm. all of those are much more connected. Um, and just the shift away from agriculture in the daily life of individuals in, in rural communities in the Midwest. I'm, I'm, Emily, I'm interested in your comment about the special knowledge that folks in rural communities might have because the land is present, because maybe because at least indirectly they're economically dependent upon the use of the land. And I'm wondering what what that special knowledge, how that special knowledge might manifest itself, and also what that says about um, attitudes toward the natural sciences. I, I think, uh, at least in Earl's work, and perhaps as you, in your work as well, there's some skepticism toward scientific knowledge, even scientific knowledge that relates to the condition and future of the resource that, that is, is being dependent upon. Um, 
I'm thinking of climate science, particularly in, in Earl's case. Yeah, so I, so I study, um, as part of my book project, I study the first zoning ordinances in rural America yeah. in Wisconsin. And so in that context, context, rural Wisconsinites know the land, right? They know what land should be farmed, what land is good for what kind of farming, or at least they perceive that they have that kind of knowledge. This is in the 1930s and the state ag agency, right? Out of the University of Wisconsin comes in and says, I can take a soil sample and tell mm -hmm. you what really this land is yep. about. Right. And there's a, there's a conflict there, right? Because there's two types of knowledge and I, um, you know, I tend to be more of a scientific mind, but there, but that, that there's no, I don't want to undervalue that local knowledge either, because people had been living on the land and making a, a living off of it for a long time. So I think in that instance, I just see maybe two valid forms of knowledge just clashing and unable to kind of speak to each other. So I think the more successful uh, kind of climate science research, the land science, ag science research is the kind that really tries to find overlap of common interests between these two sources of knowledge. I think Earl's example shows this really well. The, the, I'll let him speak about it, but I was really um, taken by how the watermen have an idea of that something is changing. There's that sense there, but it's not articulated in the same kind of scientific way. And I see that across the 20th century in, in agriculture and zoning in Wisconsin, but I also see it in things like education in rural America. I, I think this kind of local knowledge versus expert knowledge is just something that's pervasive among all rural issues. Earl, how did you see that playing out in Tangier? Well, it, it goes back uh, generations, I guess, uh, that, uh, you know, the state is, the state regulates the fishery in the Chesapeake Bay, the various fisheries, and Tangierman, in addition to being deeply religious, have kind of a, a bit of piracy running through them. And they've resisted that regulation at every turn. And most of that resistance is based on uh, their belief that state regulators don't know that water is wet. They don't understand that the, the resource they're trying to ride herd on, they don't understand the, the animals uh, and, and their behavior. They misread things constantly. They're just book smart, big city kids, you know, trying to tell us how to do our job. And, um, and really what it comes down to, both in, in that fisheries regulation and more recently in climate change and how the, you know, the state and the community will respond to that is, is a different style of data collection. And if the local knowledge that Emily is talking about is, a, is an anecdotal form of data collection versus the more empirical form that the state and the scientists pursue. And, uh, and you know, they, they, the tangerine go out in their boats and they look at the water and that is the source of their knowledge of it. And uh, tidal gauges, uh, marsh accretion, other signals that the, bay, you know, the water is coming up in the bay, they're gonna miss that. That's not something they see. Uh, even if they had uh, the inclination to, to watch something long enough to, to gather that kind of data in that way, most of their observation is done from the pitching deck of a small boat. It's a, it's a terrible place to, to, to gauge change from. And, uh, and so it's, uh, you've got two groups of people talking completely past each other, uh, both acknowledging that there's something going on, both disagreeing foundationally as to what it is. And uh, uh, the sad thing in Tangier's 
case is that there's very little time left for the for this to be sorted out. The the, uh, the dilemma that we're all facing over time is you know that it's accelerated dramatically because of the you know, the the realities of the Lower Chesapeake and and what's happening there. I'm wondering whether this is a whether the difference here is at least to some extent a difference between knowing how to do something, knowing how to farm, knowing how to get crabs, all the sort of nuances of that practical knowledge versus the more um, academic activity of knowing about finding out about things in a more systematic way. Okay, so um, I'm wondering sort of how this, how this comes down to attitudes toward nature. And I'm, I'm, I have the word stewardship in my mind. I'm not sure that that is the right word, but do, do you see a, 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 an ethic or a norm of stewardship in these communities given this close relationship? And how does that look? I can speak again to the Wisconsin context. Yeah. You know, the, um, I think it's hard because the economy is built, at least, you know, in this area of Wisconsin that I study in the 1930s, on agriculture or timber production, right? And so you make money by cutting down all the trees, but you make money by having trees to cut down. And so I think there's a, the, there's a, there's a connection to the land. There's a, a, a desire to, um, as you say, you, you know, steward as active stewards for the land, but also when that is your source of income, right? Th there's conflicting interests there that I think are very difficult to play out when it, um, when the rubber hits the road. Yeah, the the change uh, your attitude surprised me quite a bit the first time I was exposed to it. I assumed that uh, that there would be a, a, a more protective stewardship of the resource than there was. And, and what I found, I first went to Tangier in 99, 1999. And at that point, the island uh, got a lot, of, a lot of visitors. You know, a lot of people day tripped out to the island, but very few made the trip twice because it was an eyesore. Tangierman did not treat their island gently. Yeah. Uh, you know, out in the marsh, there were abandoned refrigerators and motorcycle frames and uh, yeah. all manner of stuff. You saw watermen toss oil bottles, you know, over the side of, of their boats. They threw trash in the water. And that began to change uh, right at about that time, right at about 2000. And, and it changed because a University of Wisconsin graduate student named Susan Drake Emmerich brought a, uh, her doctoral thesis to the island, uh, which was that you could use faith-based stewardship to change mm. behavior. And what she and so she brought this kind of New Testament form of of um, well, what Tangierman would call earth worshiping uh, <laughs> to the island, and uh, and damned if the the place didn't pivot and become much more environmentally aware. That said, Tangiermans still take to the water, uh, resentful of limits on their catch, uh, law abiding in that respect because the fish cops are very attuned to the fact that there is this you know, uh, thread of piracy running through the Tangier makeup. Uh, but 
resentful nonetheless. And, uh, you know, if it were up to Tan Sherman, they'd go out and they'd catch every single crab in the Chesapeake Bay today because there's no telling what tomorrow might bring. And they might have, not have the chance or some mainlander may be going after their crabs. And uh, so it's a pretty rapacious approach to the actual, uh, you know, collection of the species on which their lives depend. And uh, of course, that kind of attitude fed into a lot of what happened to the oyster in the in the late 19th century and and uh and so the although that's a good news story right the oysters have come back for some well, against a lot yes because yes, of regulation <laughs> yeah absolutely well that maybe that brings us to law uh which is a, another topic I, we wanted to talk about so um I the general question is how, what is the importance of law in these communities? But I'm thinking more particularly about some work that has suggested that in smaller communities, like the ones that you all look at, law may be less important for resolving disputes than formal norms of, you know, reciprocity and trust. And, um, I'm wondering whether you saw that in the daily operation in your communities um, and, and what role is left for law in these settings? Emily, well, you want to go first? No, you want I, I, can, I can go ahead. Um, so, you know, I am a law professor and as a good, you know, law and society association member, I think there is law everywhere. I think, um, you know, this idea that law is not happening in rural communities, or, you know, this kind of frontier idea of lawlessness is not an accurate, accurate picture of what's happening in rural communities. I do see a lot of informal dispute resolution, whether that is, you know, through, um, you know, criminal law context, you know, informal dispute resolution is just part of communities where everybody knows everybody. Mm -hmm. I don't think, um, and I think that's a part of, you know, rural communities, but it wouldn't surprise me if that's true in small communities within large urban hubs too. When everybody knows everybody, I think informal mechanisms are at work. But that doesn't mean that law is not there structuring those disputes um, at the local level. You know, local government in rural communities is the way in which most rural people interact with the law, not necessarily state and federal law, but they feel really connected. They're electing their own mayors, they're participating in the school boards. So I think at the local level, there's actually lots and lots of law going on, lots of local ordinances. Um, and that relationship to the law is, looks maybe quite different from state and federal law, where that might seem more distant, um, less informed of local context, but I certainly see law everywhere, even as I also recognize and write about how informal conflict is just, you know, part and parcel of rural life, too. Well, uh, insofar as Tangier is a family, most of, uh, most of the dispute resolution is within the family. <laughs> uh, the place has had a, had a town sergeant for uh, most of most of its recorded history, going back at least to the, the late 19th century, it's without one right now. Uh, John Wesley Charnock, their town sergeant, died of a heart attack about three months ago, and they've gone without a, a cop. Um, and a cop on, on Tangier uh, spends his time pretty much uh, attending to uh, islanders who have chosen to overlook 
it's uh, the island's dry status and have snuck liquor aboard and have gotten into trouble with each other or their families as a result. Um, there's very little daytime activity for the cop. It's almost all at night. Uh, and, but even with the cop there, what you tend to see is there are very few people taking the Accomac County. You see hardly anyone taken across the water. Uh, they're, they're dealt with within the church, uh, you know, within their peer group, uh, and within their families. And, uh, very occasionally there will be an act of violence, uh, but uh, you can count on one hand uh, over the generations how many times someone's been seriously hurt on the island due to, due to that. Uh, about the only trouble you see people getting into of a serious nature is fisheries related. It's either poaching or it's overcatch or something like that. The uh, VMRC, the Virginia Marine Resources Commission, have the status of state troopers. So if you get popped by the fish cops, uh, you know, you're, you're in trouble. And, uh, and Tan Chairman are very mindful of that. I'm interested Earl, in, I, go ahead, Emily. I was gonna say, Earl, I don't know if you found this in, on Tijir Island. I, I often find that the people who can access the informal modes of dispute resolution are, you know, part of an in-group and there's always a few outsiders, right? And so whether those outsiders are, immigrants in Iowa at the farm or the meatpacking plant, right? Or if they are kind of um, non-conforming folks in the community, they are more likely to interact. Like they are the people who are more likely to, to encounter the police force instead of the church as a dispute resolution. And I don't know if you see that in Tangier Island, but I certainly see that in the Midwest. There are uh, repeat disappointers <laughs> who, who, you know, and again, this is mostly alcohol related, who have just uh, time and again uh, brought shame on themselves and on their, their families, at least in the eyes of, of the island. And, uh, and yeah, they're probably, they're, they're probably somewhat sequestered by the rest of the population and they don't have access to that. They've been written off but there are very few people like that. There's a, there's a bend in the road uh, up on the west side of the island that's uh, nicknamed the Devil's Elbow because quite a few of these sequestered folks are clustered there and, and, and they form their own little subset of, of the Tangier community. But uh, aside from them, I think that the, the Tangier mode of dispute resolution is more to force them into inclusion and then to, you know, then to exile uh, wrongdoers. You see a lot of, uh, you know, if, if someone gets into trouble, if someone has a personal issue that would cause embarrassment on the mainland, uh, on Tangier, you, you, you see people kind of wordlessly uh, offer a hand. Uh, it, one of the most impressive things about the island, I think, is that for all of its kind of stern, um, a 19th century take on on Christianity, and you know this kind of fire and brimstone message. It's a, uh, it's it's a it's a pretty supportive social network that that they built there. Uh, there's there's relatively little brimstone in their, you know, in their day to day interactions and and addressing of you know, personal failings. Uh, um, but yeah, but to your point, Emily, yeah, that there are, there is that very small sliver of people who have been kind of written off. 
just I'm hearing in, in both your comments that there's a distinction between the local order and an order that comes from outside, that is the state or the federal government. Uh, I think, Emily, in some of your work, you point out the resistance to federal labor laws and other uh, requirements. And Earl, you talked about the resistance to the Virginia DEQ restrictions and maybe there's some federal requirements too. Is that, uh, how, how do you understand that? And is that a bridgeable gap or is that just inherent in the nature of these communities and their relationship, uh, somewhat adverse relationship to the outside um, authorities? Mm. I think it's a bridgeable gap um, because you do, I, so in my research, I do see resistance to federal labor laws. I, um, you know, in my work on a rural prosecutor in the 20s, I see resistance to federal prohibition, right? You, you see um, a resistance to outside imposition. But I also see, you know, those Wisconsinites zoning, they're courting New Deal federal dollars. There's, I, there's lots of times that rural communities do court federal regulations or support or money. And so I think, I think that is, um, there are two sides to that coin. And, I, and I, so I do think it's bridgeable, but figuring out how to do that, I think is far more difficult than me saying it's, it's bridgeable because it has to be support. And I think there has to be support that gives the rural communities some autonomy with that support, right? That's why they resist the outside is because federal regulations don't understand this local knowledge or this local way of life or local priorities or local needs. And so um, the, they like money when they can take that money and put it towards what they see are the challenges in their community. But when a federal agency says what those challenges are, that seems a little bit more, more um, there's more friction there. Yeah, the, uh, I'm trying to think, John, uh, I lived in Alaska for three years and I'm trying to, to put myself back in, in some of the bush villages I, I visited to, find the commonality with Tangier. And, and I think that it might lie in the fact that whenever you deal with law from the outside, a stranger is coming to town. Uh, you know, you're, uh, if you're on Tangier, you're going to see a boat from the state pull up at the county dock. If you're in a bush mm -hmm. village down in the, you know, the, the Cusco-Quim River, you're going to see a, a bush plane land at the local airstrip. And a revenuer or a fed of some sort is going to step off that plane. And, uh, and his relationship with you and with your community is completely different just from, just by virtue of, of the beginning of the relationship, his arrival, his or her arrival. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the, it, that's prob it's probably a less dramatic sort of phenomenon when, you're, when you are connected by the interstate system, when uh, it's just a, black government sedan that's pulling up to the curb. <laughs> but still, it's, you know, that, that outsider, that stranger come to town is, is, I think it colors what goes on afterwards. And uh, in, in some ways, I would think that, that local law is much more difficult to negotiate because you're not fooling anybody. Um, you know, it, there, there may be a certain trepidation about having someone from the federal or state government pull up but they're going to be generally easier to snow too. And they're um, going to leave. And yeah, and then they'll get back into that boat of that plane or that, that black <laughs> snow. 
that's that's absolutely a huge piece of it. And then yeah. you don't have to worry about them until they show up again. Yeah, and I think so. That's you know, you had to stay in that community for how long before you gained the trust of that community and started to really understand the needs of Tangier Island. And I think um, there's just such a wide diversity of rural communities that that's also part of this gap too, right? Federal regulators are trying to regulate many rural communities, but there's such wide diversity and it takes so long to build that trust on the local level. I think those are just, you know, time and resource challenges that our federal government doesn't necessarily always have um, to make those kinds of connections. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, when the, when the, when the U.S. Marshal lived in town, <laughs> you know, uh, it was a, a different kind of town from you know, the U.S. Marshal wrote a circuit and or showed up whenever there was just trouble. Um, so it's, yeah, it, it, to answer your question, I was there for 14 months. I'm still waiting for some members of the community to trust me, I'm sure. Uh, but, uh, but I'd say it took a good, it took four or five before the island realized, okay, he's not leaving. And that was kind of the key. That was the key. I had to, had to put up with him for quite a while. So. All right. Well, I, I want to I want to segue a little bit here and talk about um, the, the the politics of rural America. I think, and I, I, I this is a generalization to start with, and obviously this varies from place to place. But I think that the general understanding, I think the polls bear this out, is that rural America, at least taken as a whole, is politically significantly more conservative than. Um, urbanized America, the core cities and the suburbs. And I'm, I'm wondering if, if, first of all, if do you just add an observation that seems right to you? And second, what, why, why would that be? Um, given that the basic human challenges that we face are the same, whether we live in rural communities or, or cities? Well. <laughs> <laughs> Emily, if you want to go for it. <laughs> go for it. <laughs> um, well, I can take a stab at it. So I do think generally speaking, right, the way the polls and our maps bear out, rural okay. communities tend to be more socially conservative and, and politically conservative. So I think that that's not wrong. Mm -hmm. I do think uh, both in my historical research, I, you know, I find a couple of individuals who I love following around because they are far more politically complex people than just you know, kind of your stereotypical rural person, um, rural Republican conservative. And I find them really interesting because they're mixing, you know, Marjorie Burns, when she's advocating for education, she's mixing Nixon with the Equal Rights Amendment with her kids who are off in Vietnam protest. Like there's just, there's there's a, a wide range of, of political views in rural communities, even if it manifests in a conservative vote at the ballot box, I think mm -hmm. there's a, a wider expression. I also just see, lots of space across the 20th century for non-socially conservative folks in rural places. The oddballs, the, I see lots of space in those. I actually worry a lot now that, there, that that space is decreasing in rural communities, that there's less space for the, for the social outlier, the, the person who doesn't conform to social norms. Um, but there's also really great work going on right now um, you know, Elizabeth Cates, um, What You're Getting Wrong About Appalachia talks about the, the left, um, lots of people of color in rural communities that are that are not conforming to this social conservative stereotype. Dissent just had a whole um, issue about 
uh, rural left progressive politics. So I think I think that's not true of all of rural America, but generally it is. And where I see the the reason for that, at least in, in my historical research, is our church communities stepping in to form social safety nets to, to serve as the hub of a community often. And the church tends to be policing morality in a way that 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 aligns with social conservatism in, in many ways. I guess it was very odd to be on team chair during the 2016 presidential campaign and, and on election day. Um, it was very lonely election day for this big city journalist visiting, I'll tell you that. Um, Tanger voted 88% for Donald Trump. Uh, that was uh, pretty reflective of, of Accomack County as a whole and probably the Virginia Eastern Shore as a whole. And uh, I've tried to figure out how to reconcile that ever since because on the one hand, this is a, a deeply religious community that seemed to vote against its its beliefs, you know, to a large degree. This is a community that is praying for intercession by the federal government to build a seawall around their perimeter so that they can keep the island from going under. Right. Uh, and here they appear to be voting against their own interests. And at the at the core of it, what I've come to see is that they they thought that maybe Trump would be able to to cut through some of the government red, uh, red tape that binds the Army Corps of Engineers and its response to Tangier's dilemma. But more than that, I think that this is a, a group of people who feel left behind, who feel that uh, the American dream has not manifested itself in the manner they expected and, and hoped for. And so what the hell, they're going to break something. Yeah. And, uh, I think that there is that perverse current that runs through an awful lot of a, a American, the, the you know, the American voting public. Let's break something and see what happens. And, and uh, I got to say that when I was on Tangier in the fall of 2016, I started getting weird twinges of foreboding that, that we were going to see that let's break something kind of mentality on a grand scale. Uh, didn't expect <laughs> things to turn out the way they did. But uh, but I was disquieted by it. Uh, it's uh, you know to this day, uh, if you go to a church service uh, on Tangier, there is a disconnect between what the people in in that building pray for and what comes out of their mouths the second they leave the building, and um, and I wish I could explain it beyond what you know just that. Let's break it. Um, but. Emily, other thoughts? I'm gonna I'm gonna turn soon to the questions from the from the viewers, but I'd I'd give you a last word on that if you wanted. Uh, no, I, I'm happy to hear what our audience says. Okay. And, um, All right. Great thoughts in there. So we're gonna we're gonna go to audience questions. We have uh, one from a, a UVA student. From a management or governance perspective, how do we balance data-driven knowledge and that traditional or local ecological knowledge, particularly in relation to information-driven policies, governance, and the policy platforms of democratically elected candidates? So this, 
just builds on the discussion we had earlier, but suggests how do we bridge how do we bridge that gap in in producing um, good government policy, uh, assuming that we would know that when we saw it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, last semester I taught a class on rural law at Michigan, and I was struck by how much of the legal scholarship, at least starts out by saying we don't have very much data. And so I think gathering more data is important and understanding the diversity of rural communities is important, but not just um, empirical or quantitative data. I think we need more qualitative data. We need to spend more time in rural communities talking to them um, and figuring out how they perceive their own um, needs and challenges and try to align. I think there's actually a lot of space to, to align federal policy and regulations with local needs, but I think there has to be, you just have to build that trust and it takes, there's a lot of distrust there over maybe a century that has built up, if not longer. And I think it's going to take time to rebuild that trust. Because like Earl said, it's, we, we tell the story of rural America as decline, rural people feel left behind. And so I think um, rebuilding that trust and getting over the left behind part is, is part of what we have to do. You know the uh, the problem isn't isn't the data; it's how how the data is used too. Uh, you know, and, and we, I think people uh, those in command of the empirical data, the um, coming from the government side, have to be a lot more creative as to how they translate it in, into an explanation that resonates. And uh, you know, it's one thing to to throw numbers around; it's a number another thing to translate those numbers into a this is what it means picture that you know the recipient can understand and grasp and a, a good example is, is in Tangier's case you you know the town is forecast to be the first real American town that'll that'll have to be abandoned due to climate change and Tangierman will dispute that saying well if you look around the edges of the island I don't see the water coming up you know, I've been I've been working these waters for 50 years, and the water doesn't look any higher now than it did back when I started. And uh, what they're expecting is is to actually be able to see it, and, uh, and you know that's a mistake. And right. no one sat them down and said, "Well, you know, first of all, day-to-day -day observation is a really poor way to measure incremental change." Um, and and second, you know, you're looking at it from the same from from you know, your eyes are five feet over the ground and that's how you see the world. And you never have an opportunity to get up any, you know, to observe the world from any other elevation. And if you're on Tangier from, you know, looking from eyes five feet off the ground out over the marsh, it looks like an unbroken sea of, of bronze in the winter, light green in the, in the summer of, of Spartina and other marsh grasses. And, uh, and you don't see it hidden in there are all is all the evidence that the island is not only you know getting smaller around the edges but is actually dissolving from the middle you right. get up 15 feet or 20 or 30 better yet you go up on an airplane suddenly you realize that the island as you thought it was bears no resemblance to the island as it is that it is a lacework a loose macrame of marsh barely held together it's coming apart in into a million pieces can't German don't see that if if the folks who are trying to convince them that they're in trouble 
<laughs> were, to, were to charter a plane and take them up for rides, they'd get buy-in immediately. That's interesting. Well, maybe it's worth a, a, a charter flight. <laughs> <laughs> so we, here's another question that I think follows along this track and maybe extends it further. This is from a, a person who works in government in a role that is regulatory. Um, and the, the questioner says, I am committed to helping the individual in rural communities while at the same time serving society by helping improve the environment, the mission of my agency. What advice do you have to help me make meaningful connections with individuals to help bridge the gap that you are discussing? I don't know if I have too much more to add to this than what I've already said, except that if your interests are, you know, focus on the center of the Venn diagram, right? Where the interests converge between the two communities, your goals and the community's goals and try to build the relationships there and then pull um, your direction from that, that central bridge. I don't know that I have much more there, except that I think it's hard. I, I mean, that's really, that's what I think the answer is, is it's really hard to do. And I think that's why we've struggled with it for so long. Yeah, and, and time is, is key to it. That, and which may be the harder, hardest thing to, you know, to apply of all. It, You've got to invest time in building a relationship and not only building a relationship, but building some expertise uh, and, and expertise that goes beyond the data, expertise that puts you on the ground where these people live, uh, you know, uh, so that you do have some commonality. You can empathize with, with their day-to-day -day experience. Um, you know, the, the, what I mentioned earlier about the, Islanders finally coming to trust me only after they realized I wasn't going away. I, I think that kind of applies to any outsider coming into a, a small insular community is that you have to establish that I'm not, you know, number one, I'm going to be here for a while. And, and it, that can take a lot of different forms. It doesn't have to necessarily be a physical presence constantly. But I think that the first thing you have to sell folks on is the idea that, uh, you know, I'm going to be here. This is the face you're going to be dealing with for the foreseeable future. Yeah. Well, uh, you got a great product out of that. Uh, maybe regulators can <laughs> trade on that model. <laughs> um, so here's a question that follows up on our um, narrative uh, of decline uh, theme and suggests or wonders whether there's an alternative. It says, our approach to rural places seems to be dominated by a narrative of decline, even if often romanticized. Is there a different way to talk about or understand low growth places? I love this question. Um, so I think, yeah, we should take rural communities on their own terms. They're not trying to turn into cities. Um, so, you know, they are going to stay low growth. That's, that's the the goal of the community. So we should take them on their own terms. But I also, as a historian, I have been really fascinated by this story of decline. It's the way rural communities tell stories about themselves. It's the way a lot of scholarship tells the story of rural communities, at least across the 20th century, if not longer. But a lot of that story starts with 1920 when America became majority urban. 
but it's just arbitrary. We just made up a number that said any community smaller than 2,500 people are rural, all the bigger communities are urban. And so that has started a, a narrative of rural decline in relative population to urban. But I, I, I don't wanna belittle or downplay the actual decline, right? Earl's story is about a literal decline of land mass, right? Like that, mm -hmm. that community is shrinking and, and is at risk. And so I don't wanna downplay the fact that decline narratives um, are around because they feel real and are real in many ways. I think there's far more interesting stories about change and resilience in rural communities across the 20th century. They look different than they used to, but that doesn't mean that they are necessarily in decline. They are still facing extreme challenges, but they also faced extreme challenges at the beginning of the 20th century. So I think to talk about how things look different in rural communities is a more productive way to talk about how rural communities change over time than a, than a declension narrative. Uh, not that the not that the Clinton narrative has no value, but I think there's more productive ways to talk about it. Mm -hmm. I'm with Emily on that. And, and you know, uh, there, there, are, there are differences, not only in kind of the rural model today versus yesteryears, but also in, among rural models today. I mean, the, uh, if you go to Highland County, Virginia, uh, out in the West Virginia line. Uh, population has been pretty steady if you, you know, if you count heads over the weekend. Uh, but what you find is that a great number of the farms on Highland have been bought by weekend owners who aren't there during the week. They're in DC or Baltimore. And, uh, and so the population really is, is half of what it was just 40 years ago or so. And, uh, to drive through Highland on a you know Wednesday or Thursday is to drive through a ghost a ghost county. I mean, there's nobody there. Um, uh, at the same time, you you go to the Eastern Shore, which was completely uh, isolated those 40 years ago, and now it's it's thriving. You know, it's it's still small population, but it's it's got a tourist economy that uh, that's incredibly vibrant, and um, every other house is a bed and breakfast. Um, so it's it's uh, it is changing, and and uh, uh, well, I don't know that I have a better point to make other than that. But uh, yeah. can I just add one more part to it? One part. So I think one place where the declension narrative is particularly dangerous is in rural communities in the Midwest, where I see large Latino and Latina populations um, as as workers in the ag industry, either. Um, mostly in the meatpacking industry, right? But, but these communities are, rural communities are still alive and thriving because of these immigrant populations, but that narrative of decline, right, is also um, coded for um, we aren't white communities anymore. And so I think that declension narrative sometimes conceals um, uh, Midwestern small communities really talking about race in a way that is, that is, unfortunate and dangerous and actually um, not recognizing how much immigrant populations are contributing to rural Midwestern communities right now. Many of them are only alive because of these populations um, making rural communities economically viable. Okay, yeah. Emily, you've, you've answered it. Another question we had, which was to uh, comment further about 
race and politics in, in rural America. I don't know, uh, Earl, whether you had any further thoughts. My, my sense from reading your book is that um, Tangier Island is not very diverse, but maybe that's just a function of history <laughs> since, since everybody's descended from the, the originator. Yeah, that's true. There, there were four uh, South Asian girls adopted by one family back in the in the early 90s, so briefly, Tangier was, was, had a 1% South Asian population, but, uh, but other than that, it's been uniformly white for generations. Okay. You know, I, I think this may be different than Tangier Island. In the Midwest, I see many rural communities that have intentionally used local government tools to keep their communities white. It's not an accident of history so much as an intentional um, construction of their community. So the Wisconsin communities that use zoning try to zone out um, at that time white ethnic minorities out of their community in the 1930s to keep their community um, looking the way they wanted it to look. In Michigan in the 50s and 60s, I see rural church women supporting migrant laborers, but also trying to make sure that they don't stay in their community to keep their community white. I see the federal government trying to um, relocate rural uh, native people from reservations into urban areas and literally do away with rural reservations. So I see the law at work a lot in the Midwest in a way that we might assume the world Midwest looks white because that's who settled that area. But actually, I think law, at least in the cases I see, is doing a lot of work to construct whiteness in the Midwest. Okay, we have some a couple of questions. I'm gonna give them both to you um, because they're connected. The first is uh, to direct it specifically to Emily, but the other is more general. So Emily, I'm wondering if you could speak more about your surely correct point that rural Midwestern communities are less connected to agriculture than at the start of the century. How have you seen that change reflected, if at all, in rural political preferences? It seems rural plus ag are still treated as the same in rural political rhetoric, but should they be? And then uh, a further question on this theme, more urban professionals whose relationship with nature is grounded in leisure, more so than production, seem to be moving to rural areas for remote work, given expanded internet access and the ongoing epidemic. And I've heard people say that before. Any insight on how this trickle of outsiders could affect both local and national land use law in rural communities? That's a mouthful. <laughs> Right. Um, I don't know if on the first point, I think I'm not sure what I think on this. I, it does seem that rural and ag are still treated as one in the same in national politics, um, sometimes maybe in federal policy, but I, I don't think that they should be. I think if we separated them, we would find far more diversity in rural communities of ideas. Um, but I think part of that is because, you know, big ag has interests that are um, fiscally conservative in many ways and rural communities have more socially, they're still very socially conservative. So their, their interests align politically often. But I also am seeing rural culture politically, but also, you know, in mainstream culture, 
sift out of rural America, right? You can go to Cabela's in a good sized town and, and consume rural culture. You can watch TV and watch Duck Dynasty and consume rural culture outside of rural communities. So I think there's there's something else going on there about this separation between rural communities and ag, but I don't, I haven't fully thought that through yet. Um, and you know, exurban communities are one of the few types of rural communities that are thriving right now. Those are um, certainly um, keeping rural communities alive. And I would assume, but I don't know, that rural local governments will change land use zoning kind of regulations to encourage that kind of growth to have the, the tax income. Well, I, I'm assuming that uh, there are not too many um, uh, refugees from COVID relocating to Tangier Island to uh, work remotely. Not, not if they care about the island, they're not. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I, what Emily just said reminded me, uh, actually, I'd like to ask her a question. That, that is, uh, you know, one of the, the things, Emily, that I've seen driving uh, kind of the, the tenor of life, both in Tangier and, and back when I lived in Alaska, is the loss of young people from rural communities. You know, they get hit 18 and they're gone. And then very few of them come back on any sort of permanent basis. And uh, it's been my observation, and this is strictly anecdotal, this is a Tangier style piece of data collection. Uh, but it's been my observation in both places that these exoduses are, are fairly recent uh, and that they really coincide, their beginnings coincide with the arrival of satellite TV in both places. If you were to go to Bethel, Alaska, uh, you would find that uh, their loss of young people to Tangier, where the streets are paved in gold, uh, began in about 19... 80, 1981, and that's right when satellite dishes started showing up in the village. And if you go to Tangier, it's about 1985. That's when boys started staying in high school till they graduated. And that's when satellite TV arrived. And, you know, you don't have to see but so many Rico Suave videos before you realize that there are sexier and more glamorous places to live than where you happen to be if you live in Bethel or in Tangier. And I'm uh, just wondering whether you think that there is any any correlation there whatsoever. I don't know. This is me being a historian. You know, after World War One, all the farmers are worried that their boys aren't going to come back to the farm. They've gone and seen Europe. They've seen the big cities, and they're not mm -hmm. coming back. I I think that this is is a persistent concern. I actually think um, there's several persistent concerns in rural America, but this is one of them, that their kids will leave. The brain drain, I think, has been real for a long time. Um, and I think there's just not a lot of those types of jobs in rural communities. So I think that's actually one of the things we need to do in rural communities is build ways for our college educated kids to come back to rural communities and live productive lives that's, that are meaningful, but I also think that that means rural communities are going to have to be less socially conservative and be more open to a wider range of ideas. And I think they're doing that in some places, but I think that's really key to many rural communities survival is to welcome back many of these kids who have gone to college or left for a while and may think differently about how the world works, um, but could really add to the life and vibrancy of rural communities. 
Okay, well, we're getting close to our time, but I wanted to ask one question and ask, ask you to answer um, as, as quickly as you can. What do we owe these communities, if anything? We, the collective United States of America, I think in Earl's case, that's a pretty pointed question given the, the, diso the physical dissolution, but maybe there's a more general sense that we have of what, if anything, um, these communities are rightfully expecting from us. I, I don't know that I, I, yeah, other than getting you know, into the obvious and dangerous case, I think that, that um, what we owe it to ourselves to keep in mind about them, I think, uh, is that they help establish the breadth of the American experience mm -hmm. over in significant to our day-to-day -day lives living in the city uh, life out in the, you know, in the back blocks might seem it 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 is uh, it is a huge piece of our identity as Americans as a people, uh, and and you know you, you take away the the outliers and you're left with the middle, and uh, that's kind of a, a bland, flavorless center. You know, I mean, it, 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 out on the edges where all the all the spices, and yeah. uh, so. Yeah, I, I agree with Earl. I think there's, um, maybe it's because I grew up in a rural place, but I think there's kind of a, a sentimentality that I think we owe to these rural communities. And, and um, But I also think we owe it to them to take them seriously, that these are good places to live, that they want to live there. And we should take seriously the kinds of economic poverty challenges they face and help them address it. I, we don't... Uh, I mean, it's still nearly a fifth of our population. And those are just communities under 2,500 people, right? We have a large section of our population under 10,000, if you want to count that as rural. We owe these communities the same thing that we owe all our communities, that they have the ability to confront challenges of economic inequality, infrastructure, they get internet, they should have good education, all the things that we want all Americans to have. Um, sometimes it costs more to provide out um, on an island, <laughs> but you know, I think those costs are largely worth it, and um, we owe them to take them seriously and their challenges seriously. Well, thank you so much, Earl and Emily, for being with us and sharing your thoughts on these issues. Uh, it's been a delightful conversation, at least for me, and I know for our viewing audience. Um, so we're inviting all of you who are uh, joining us for this session to join us for our next Place in Power session on October the 16th at 4 p.m. We'll be talking to um, Mary Nichols, who's, uh, who's head of the California Air Resources Board, and uh, Ann Carlson, a professor at UCLA, will we'll discuss the productive but fraught relationship between state and federal authorities and local authorities in dealing with LA's air quality issues. I do want to mention that the Virginia Environmental Law Journal will be sponsoring follow-up events to this dialogue, so please stay tuned. And uh, thank you all again, and goodbye. <laughs> thank you. Goodbye. Thank you.